Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This day, July 30, we discover the government is using and abusing our metadata. Who knew? Then we'll look at the doorstopper ACCC report into digital platforms and its many, many recommendations. And we'll look past Barnaby Joyce's New Start train wreck interview to see the genuine issue underneath. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today, it's a new book on parenting by John Marsden, the ABC series Blue Water Empire, a podcast on the roots of postmodernism, and an ABC comedy. Yes, they do exist. It's called Fleabag, and you'll hear more about it later. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Chris. Also with us in the IPA studio is my colleague, Kurt Wallace. Thanks for having me. And just to balance the numbers up, we have another one from RMIT University, <laughs> Professor Jason Potts. Yes, good morning. Welcome, Jason. Great to have you on board for your first outing on Looking Forward, I think. Yeah, no, this is exciting to be here. Great. And what's your, what's your day job, Jason? Um, I'm an economist. I work on blockchain at the RMIT Blockchain Ah, Nation. yes, because no one's ever mentioned blockchain. Have you heard of blockchain? Podcast. We can uh, talk about it. Yeah, okay, maybe later. Okay. I think that was a compulsory mention, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please do go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate so that we have more more lovely podcasts and more wonderful research from the IPA. We're going to start off today by talking about an issue dear to Dr. Berg's heart, which is uh, the new data retention regime, and we have some idea of how that's going now. Absolutely, Scott. So data retention for um, listeners who may need a refresher was a bill passed in 2015. It went into effect in 2017. What it does is it requires your internet service provider to collect metadata about um, your use of the internet and store that metadata for two years just in case a government agency would like to have a look at who you've been emailing, when you've been emailing them, and so forth. There was a big review. The legislation required a parliamentary review into the mandatory data retention regime, which has been going on right now. And what it has revealed is a huge bunch of things that tell us a lot about these huge regulatory increases and how they happen and how bad they can be once they occur. So we should probably drill down a little bit into them. But I think the thing that really stuck in my craw, because we, when I was at the IPA, I did a lot of work on data retention. I've been looking at it since. And the thing that the government always said, absolutely, Malcolm Turnbull said, George Brander said, um, they said it was specifically because and for dealing with big crimes like serious crimes and terrorism and child exploitation and so forth. We now know who's using this regime. That's um, what the parliamentary inquiry has come out. And I'll give you a list of some of the organizations, the government agencies that are accessing um, uh, your metadata without needing to ask for a warrant. So this is like AFP, <laughs> Oh, if only, if only. So let's start with the securities regulator, then the communications regulator, ACMA, then the Australian Tax Office, of course, then the Building and Construction Commission, Anti-Doping Sports Authority, the Clean Energy Regulator, the Taxi Services Commission, the Hunter Region Illegal Dumping Squad, the NDIS, or National Disability Insurance Agency, then a bunch of councils, Bankstown Council, Brisbane, Rockdale, Liverpool. Centrelink is using they, the they metadata let, regime. They let councils? They let councils use Access it. metadata? The Department of Agriculture, the Department of Fair Trading, New South Wales, Brisbane, SA, South Australian Fisheries Authority, Victorian Fisheries, Western Australian Fisheries. Anyway, so, oh, sorry, there, there's one last. The Victorian Institute of Teaching is also <laughs> accessing this regime that was specifically designed if we were to listen to Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott and George Brandis when it was introduced in 2013, 14, 15, during those debates. They said this will only be used for national security purposes. Now, I think this tells us a lot about the growth of regulation in Australia. It was supposed to be for national security, and yet now we are using it for red tape. We are using it to impose regulations on us. Kurt, I'll throw to you first. I mean, how, how should we think about these sorts of... Um, uh, what does this tell us about the growth of regulation in Australia from a national security perspective? 
Well, I think that it's interesting, like for a lot of regulation, is that it just really comes back to the issue of, you know, despite maybe the good intentions of of the government that where it leads ultimately. So at the time we had, as you said, um, Scott Morrison and George Brander saying, you know, that it was going to be a limited application. But of course we know that, you know, when certain agencies can apply to, you know, expand their power, then the whole public choice thing about expanding power of your organisation, that's, that's what tends to happen when the incentives are set up that way. And I think that it's sort of, this is part of a larger um, thing where national security has been used as this sort of catch-all um, topic of way of expanding regulation, expanding the surveillance state and depriving people of their freedoms in a way that's kind of concerning because I think that people don't actually understand the way, they're not informed about the data that people have access to and um, they, they, they don't understand the technology, they don't understand who's accessing it. And even when we hear the list there of all those agencies, we don't know what is going on in the particular circumstances. Like, what are bureaucrats doing with that data? What are they um, looking at? Are they actually invading people's privacy? So I think that uh, this national security thing has really been used as a way to really expand the state and in a number of concerning ways. Is this inevitable, Jason? Yeah, this is this is truly appalling. Um, but the, the like, there's there's two fundamental things that are also going on here in the background that I'm just as worried about beyond the you know the appalling um, um, attack on privacy and, and and breaches of those things is that data is becoming an increasingly valuable economic resource, and it's 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 it's, it's as it grows like this, control of it becomes far more important um, both for um, in the in private sectors and, and, and corporate sectors, but also for government. And what this looks like to me is is this um, encroachment on an increasingly valuable economic asset, a, a violation of property rights, just as much as a violation of privacy. And that's what we're starting to see here. When when we sort of start to normalise these encroachments and these these permissions, what we're doing is we're normalising the idea that you don't own your data or that, that the property rights in your data are not yours. They're they're to be given and allocated by the state. And it's it's that that I'm just as worried about as, as the underlying um, assaults on privacy here. In, in this case, though, it's, it's also that the government is not just – the government's not taking your property rights. It's requiring ISPs, your internet service provider, to violate your property rights in that sense because if it wasn't for these data retention restrictions, they would be deleting information about what you've done because it's actually quite expensive to store every um, uh, details about every activity that you've done on the internet. In fact, we know how expensive it is now thanks to this inquiry. It's cost them $211 million over the last four years to set this up and, and run it. it it's it, it, the, Sorry, the, does that include the ISP's cost or the That's the ISP's cost. That's the that's the regulatory cost of this so far. Now there there are other um, costs um, about the things they would have done otherwise and there are costs to our privacy, but that's the actual costs borne by the ISPs right now. Um, but what what's happened is that the government has imposed this idea of what internet service providers should be doing they should be storing all this information about us and put us at risk as a consequence because you know are we sure that the isps are looking after that data as well as yeah. they could so there's another another cool um core issue here is this whole notion of centralized data like the only reason this is possible the reason the isps have this 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 ability and obligation to do that and the reason that these vulnerabilities are created is because you've got the data stored in a huge centralized databases that then have to be protected and regulated and controlled and if anyone can breach those they get access to all of that um the alternative to this is decentralized data control um peer-to-peer -peer data control blockchain if you will um but that's the, the, the idea of, of creating new technological architectures for data is also a part of you know, what is behind this, this, this discussion and this, this control. And governments have a strong, powerful incentive to ensure that the centralized database architecture remains because that's the only way that they, so that's, they can violate Because that's that. the way that they can get to it. The only way they can get to that. A decentralized data architecture, a peer-to-peer -peer based architecture would be um, would not be able to be attacked or violated by government. Yeah, it's also, but is there, it, it's also a, um, uh, it reminds very, very old debates about sort of, you know, general versus specific warrants. You know, when, when uh, uh, the, the American Bill of Rights 
required specific warrants so that if somebody says, uh, I have a warrant to search your house, it's like, well, what for? <laughs> because, he, you know, they, they, they resented somewhat. That, whose house? Yeah, uh, King George's uh, 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 troops used to come in and say, well, I have a warrant to search your house. And they just go and keep searching until they found something and then, uh, and then you arrest you. This whole, the way governments use data and, and trawl is, is part of what disturbs me. It's, it's, it's not necessarily linked to a, to a probable cause or a particular thing that they're actually looking for. It's like, you, I'm going to force you to keep all that data and then we're going to apply probably uh, various algorithms to it in the hope that something turns up. It's like, oh, my God, this guy knows that other guy and he's he rang that other guy's uh, sister-in-law. You know, clearly there's some kind of a connection there and they're using the data to build a case rather than actually on an evidentiary basis. Well, yeah, by design because um, uh, the point about this data retention scheme is that the agencies get access to it without having to obtain a warrant. So there have been 301,000 requests done over the last 12 months, I believe. Um, it's been illegally used um, 116 times. Illegally means not by an unauthorised officer or, um, uh, or, or using against a journalist, because journalists, of course, as we know, are very special people. And so um, they have an exception. If you want to access journalist data, you need a warrant. If you want to access us poor plebs data, you, you, you won't need a warrant. But this is by design. This is because we don't, we, we haven't come to this environment where we can start conceptualizing and understanding data as property, as Jason was saying. We can't, but, but, the, but the problem is, and I'll ask this for Kurt, does the, is there an argument for the government needing access to this sort of information? I mean, even if we just take what Tony Abbott and George Brandis and, and Malcolm Turnbull were saying, and their face is there a role for the government to um, access data in relation to things like murder terrorism child sexual exploitation and so forth well i think um the the problem is is that that there's a requirement for the isps to to retain the data so that's you know having this data existing but i think the central problem is what we've been talking about is the issue of the warrant. It needs to be an actual um, you know, case made that there's been a crime committed and a reason for them to then um, you know, go and access data if that's what's going to be required. But the problem here uh, is that you know, none of those, those agencies that you read out seem to be you know, any of those high um, you know, issues of serious crimes. And I think it becomes very dangerous, especially when you have... Um, the ATO um, trying to uh, insert itself into you know, all transactions in the economy and you know, have everything centrally collected. So I think um, that's, that's an issue. But clearly there's, um, I think, the, say the counterterrorism uh, in this country, I, I would suggest, was, is probably very heavily reliant on a lot of this stuff, which I think can have, uh, possibly have justification. But I think it's also dangerous in the way that those powers are then expanded to things that the general public would see as uh, not being justified. There's also a citizen responsibility here. As, as, as data becomes more valuable, the value of encryption and the value of, of seeking privacy through technology is, is, is something we can expect to see a lot more of. And, and the um, growing illegality of, of, of privacy protections in the sense of, of um, encryption and, and so on, I think, is also a key part of the story. Yes, uh, I, 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 and I'm by no means, uh, I, I don't understand tech very much at all, but I, I am amused when I read of, you know, so-and-so, they were using encrypted communications, and it's like, it could be WhatsApp. <laughs> I mean, this is not... To talk or, to their family. Or, or Slack, yeah. you know, a much, a much more... It makes them sound a lot more technological savvy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, you, they and I, you and I were com using encrypted communications yeah, yeah. just this morning, yeah, Kurt. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, basically, all information is encrypted to some extent, very stuff, very little information is sent, what we call in the clear, but it's all about who can actually access it. In the case of something like WhatsApp, you know, Facebook who owns WhatsApp might be able to see who you're talking to, but not necessarily your information. But, but it's whether, they're un whether they are forced to disclose it to a, uh, to a government regulator. Exactly. So 
Facebook can read it. Facebook, uh, Facebook can't read it, but my understanding of WhatsApp right now is that Facebook can see if you are communicating with person X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, a messenger might be the same as well, um, oh. but but there, there might right. be some nuances. On Which this. means that the metadata isn't isn't encrypted. Yeah, so there's a difference between encrypting the metadata and encrypting the data. Um, I recommend to all listeners to use a product called Signal, which encrypts the metadata and the content of the communications as well. And that's how I insist on talking to everyone in this room from now on. Good work. Is this being recorded? <laughs> oh, that's right. It's a podcast. Sorry. Where were we? Um, and speaking of digital issues, the ACCC has appointed itself, the or the government appointed the ACCC as the resident expert on digital platforms and asked it to conduct an inquiry. What's happened there, Chris? Yeah, so the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, has released a report into digital platforms, specifically digital platforms like Google and Facebook. It narrowed its analysis down to. This was in response to a government request something like two years ago to look into them, the effect of that they've got on the um, market for advertising, the effect that they've got on the market for journalism, the um, claims that they might have monopolized um, uh, certain markets in advertising, search, all, all sorts of things. It's a very large report and it's got a very large list of really concerning claims um, uh, and concerning proposals and, and policy recommendations, some of which the government seems um, actually quite sympathetic to, which is a worry. Um, the big thing, though, I mean, it starts from this claim that there's substantial market power. So Facebook and Google have substantial market power. I don't think that the ACCC has this right at all, though, because in antitrust and competition policy, you need to not just say a company is big, you need to say a company is big and is using that bigness to raise prices. And that's not at all what is happening here. In fact, for most of us, in most circumstances, the services that they provide are free. So for consumers, who we should care about the most, consumers are in fact seeing not just no, not high prices, but no prices whatsoever um and we and and it and it falls out from there but sorry scott go uh, I, no sorry i'm going to interrupt because there is much i find to object to in the ACCC report and we will come to that but i think their their argument for what it's worth is uh that it is in the nature of a network when we're talking say specifically about google and facebook the the, the markets that they're establishing are it are this you know there's it's a two-sided market there's the consumers and then there's the advertisers and interestingly they uh, they go at some lengths to say that there are big issues for the advertisers here um, and they couldn't actually identify what they were and they've recommended a further inquiry. So I, I don't know that they're necessarily hanging their hat on the exercise of market power vis-a-vis -vis consumers. I think it's, it's some of those uh, secondary markets that are the actual sources of the revenue and so it's like they're dismantling the market power of news organisations and um, and interfering in the advertising market, but this, by the way, what 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 they're doing right through this report is just saying we're a competition regulator. There are some issues to do with competition, and therefore we can make recommendations. That they don't actually hang any anything in particular on a particular uh, head of power, if you like. But, but I mean, that's that's why the report starts from a nonsensical um, start. It either has zero impact on consumers. Um, and we should come to the data question in a moment of privacy, but it either has zero impact on consumers or it has a unknown and a, a, a impact that they couldn't figure out on advertisers. So what are we talking about? Jason, do we need to regulate social media? No, we do not. We, we <laughs> definitely do not. This is, this is absolutely absurd. Um, it's, it, it's, it's even worse than this because the, you know, the argument that they're trying to make is, is not just that there's market power and, and, and pricing considerations. You also have to make the argument that this is um, dynamically a problem, that it's going to stay like that um, through time. And just industries evolve, industries change. This is one that is, we're in the situation of you know, the rise of Facebook and, and these, these huge digital platforms. They didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Um, prior to that, there was you know, different forms of technology for communication media, um, as it will continue. And the, you know, the, the big threats to Facebook and so on aren't coming from the, the regulators right now. They're from new forms of digital competition and, and new types of, of, of innovations in this space. And 
you know, that's what they're worried about. Um, you know, they, so I think the, the, the whole sort of argument here is just fundamentally flawed on the presumption that you know, the ACCC is trying to protect um, business models that, that stopped working decades ago. Um, you can't turn back the clock on that. Um, the, like like you know, print media, for instance. Well, yeah, yeah, and you know that that was a that had a nice run. We we got a good century of, of a solid <laughs> business model out of that, and it, it more or less kind of worked until it didn't, and now it doesn't. Um, end of story, right? The new business models will emerge. Entrepreneurs will figure out new opportunities in the space. Tech will continue to change and evolve. The ACCC, all it is doing in this space is essentially trying to turn back a clock and reward a group. Um, that it that it that it favours. This is this is this is absolutely shocking. Do you Kurt? Do you see any problems with the size of Google or Facebook? Well, I think there's issues with um, some of the um, the things that Facebook's been doing with in terms of censorship of of political views. So I'm not a big fan of Facebook in that regard. But I think that's as you mentioned, the, the morphing of the A Triple C's, um, you know what their role is, is is just out of control because there is no monopoly price issue here. I don't see that there's any, uh, as any of the ACCC's business about whether, you know, past business models of journalism are working um, now or not. There's no written, there's, it's not written anywhere that print media journalists must be funded through advertising in this particular business model. And to, to say that, as this report does, that to concentrate on the effect that it has on news organisations, is completely beside the point. Uh, so I think it should really concentrate on the consumer, but none of what I see in the report actually has any um, you know, details about the ill effects it's actually having on consumers, which, I mean, I have some concerns about the ill effects it might have on, on um, speech in some areas, but that's not in the scope of what the ACCC is dealing with. Yeah, yeah, so the particular issue that you alluded to there for... Uh, conservatives in particular who uh, are concerned about deplatforming, whether it's uh, PragerU videos or, or other various figures on the centre-right who suddenly find that um, they've been pushed off a Twitter platform or can't get a YouTube video up, um, which, it, which is a genuine issue and there's an, there's an argument uh, in, within the centre-right about whether eventually the competition that Jason talked about will, will deal with this. Um, new models will come forward or whether uh, various forms of regulation might be necessary, which which are all very important debates for, for people who actually want to dissent from uh, the consensus. But none of that is actually in here. That th th These are not the issues that they're addressing and their terms of reference in the report are actually are more about, you know, oh, gee, how did this impact the print media and how did this, you know, oh, all these newspapers have closed and some local councils are not being covered. And it's seriously misleading too. So the ACCC has this story about the history of the last three decades of print and social media and online that is actually wrong or at least misleading at best. So they have this argument that advertising moved from... Um, the print media onto digital platforms like Google and Facebook. But that's not actually what happened because it wasn't the same sort of advertising. The advertising that sustained the print media was classifieds. It was the rivers of gold. Classifieds did go online, but they went online before Google and Facebook started. And in fact, they haven't migrated. Classified advertising isn't on Google and Facebook. That's not what we use um, Google and Facebook. So something like Seek.com for car sales. They moved on to yeah. car sales, yeah. Seek, Domain. Yeah. In fact, lots of companies that the newspapers actually own, quite rightly and quite intelligently. Um, uh, instead, what, what happened is that we put a lot of banner ads on Google and Facebook, which are a different sort of advertising. Or, or the, the point is that the newspapers have never had a claim to that advertising. They've never dominated that space. They've never um, dominated the market for small-scale banner advertising because, in fact, that market didn't exist. Um, yeah, uh, a new market that's emerging is targeted, where they a lot more information about you and, and that becomes a, a, a new business model that is based around instead of having mass targeting to a, a, a sort of statistical audience you're, you're trying to um, target a particular group of a particular person's likes and so on so I mean yeah that is a new business model and that's a new thing that it's not obvious that newspapers will succeed in that and and um, you know on it goes I think the um, the other issue here is that for people who do care about 
um, the you know, monopoly that Facebook might have in the social media and the you know the way the news is distributed. If you're trying to dissent from um, you know the the status quo of what Facebook are doing, you want to set up your rival um, companies like Jordan Peterson setting up a, a rival social network. You're going to have to deal with an increased regulatory burden if the ACCC gets their way. And who is going to be best suited to dealing with a regulatory burden? Google and Facebook. Incumbents. It's going to be a huge uh, benefit to to the incumbents. Um, and it will actually further the monopolisation of, of these companies. Well, even even Scott Morrison saying that the uh, took it to the G20 that the acid test was whether or not you could... Um, uh, ensure that uh, you know, terrible videos like we saw coming out of Christchurch should be could be prevented from appearing in real time. And uh, as we pointed out at the time, Google just on its own was putting together putting on something like ten thousand staff to be to be monitoring everything, just to say, oh well, it's just a requirement that you should be you should take these videos down. You know, just to say something which sounds simple in a communique. Uh, as, as you say, Kurt, you need massive resources in order to be able to do that. You've actually exacerbated the network effects of the yeah, thing. Yeah, and it's fact, a massive regulatory yeah. burden. Um, and in, in that sense, uh, there are some other really concerning policy proposals along those lines from the ACCC. So one of them that really caught my eye was the Digital Platforms Code, and this is meant to counter disinformation. So this is the idea that um, large platforms would sign up to a disinformation code that would require, registered with a regulatory agency that would require it, regulatorily require it, to pull down things that it said were disinformation. Now, the examples that the ACCC uses are disinformation like the wrong time and date of elections, doctored or dubbed video footage misrepresenting a political figure's position on issues, um, information incorrectly alleging that a public individual is involved with illegal activity. And and it says, oh, but of course, this wouldn't cover things like commentary analysis that is clearly identified as having a partisan ideological or political slant. Can you imagine, though, an environment where there is a Australian regulatory agency deciding whether what you've said has been fairly ascribed to be politically ideological or can you imagine a agency putting itself so central to public discourse that would that would mean it's making these sorts of judgments now i i think it's offensive that the ACCC, the competition regulators involved in this um at all but what a hell of a slippery slope we are heading down and it seems like the government is uh, based on scott morrison's communique seems pretty interested in these ideas and I think this would be a complete disaster. You look at um, the way that this whole fake news thing's been trumped up. I think it's been completely ridiculous. If you look at um, you know people who've you know the mainstream media who have had lists of fake news outlets, you know, read through the websites and you think, oh yeah, I read that. I read, I read Zero Hedge. I read uh, Ron Paul. They're the only ones I read. <laughs> yeah, um, first of all, they can't identify what is fake news. Um, and secondly, the whole like, if you just look at just fact checking, which has been a, a rise on the rise lately with uh, websites posting you know, fact checking, which is usually just ridiculous hair splitting of you know, politicians statements or you have Snopes doing fact checks on clearly satirical <laughs> news sites. So um, it's a, my favorite satirical website is the Babylon Bee, which has you know had, Num- numerous times has been fact-checked by Snopes and everybody reading Babylon B knows that it's <laughs> knows that it's satirical um, and just recently Babylon B had an article saying technically yeah, chickens can't cross roads yeah well they had they had an article saying you know Snopes um, fact checks and you know Looney Tunes Space Jam yeah. but and it's, it's an insult to, to voters and people and and you know some voters need insulting but this is this is political discourse of course you know there's our outrageous claims and and rhetoric is deployed and sometimes facts are invented and and you say all kinds of of crazy things but uh precisely in an age when the 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 cost of transmitting information is lower than ever i mean how how long do any of these things stay uncontested i I think i think you know barack obama was born in indonesia no he's not there is a there is a macro story here a macro political story that i think is going on this is what happens when the technocrats 
um, which we might call the elites. But the technocrats, the bureaucrats, the regulators look at populist changes. They look at the access of um, individual citizens to social media and they look at it and think, oh, that's brought us some bad things. That brought us Donald Trump. That brought us Brexit. That's brought us all sorts of populist revolts around the world. What we need to do is an inquiry that has policy recommendations that we can put into law that empowers regulatory agencies. That's what will fix Donald Trump or Brexit. That's what will that's what will put the public back in their box or fix that problem. Yeah, I think um, like an example to me of fake news is the way the ABC uh, and uh, what's now the Nine Network keep talking about the Cambridge Analytical scandal. Uh, well, I mean, we, and and the scandal seems to consist of the fact that there was a firm which used data to help Trump get elected. <laughs> that, that seems to be the extent of it. Well, the, the ACCC, of course, recommends stable funding for ABC and SBS. But we should we should talk about one of the which, which is outrageous. Which, in which is, I mean, thanks ACCC. Um, I was hoping that a competition so, regulator. So, so, would oh, sorry, I just want to labour the point. <laughs> so here's a competition regulator. One of its recommendations is that we bolster the dominance of incumbent public broadcasters. Yes, yes. Well, good public broadcasters. One of the other proposals that the ACCC has, which is interesting and we have actually talked a bit about in the past, is this idea that we might have tax deductibility for journalism entities. So right now, if you donate to if you donate to the IPA or if you donate to a university like RMIT, that donation will be tax deductible because in the IPA's case, we're doing the IPA does social science research. In the case of the university, they're doing education um, and and research as well. Um, and one of the proposals that the ACCC has is whether we should fund journalism this way as well. So could you donate to the age or could you donate to the Australian and get a tax-deductible donation for it? Um, Kurt, how do you think about this proposal? Well, I think that it's probably going to have, if this actually came in, you'd have major restructurings of institutions to try and take advantage of this. But I think it's interesting that the ACCC identifies that the problem with the news is that we have a lack of local news and a lack of reporting on courts, which is, um, to me, seems like the ACCC is saying we don't like what the, the public values. We would prefer them to value this and to, to buy these uh, particular newspapers. And I think just coming back to the, their support of, of the ABC and SBS, the ABC and the SBS do not engage in any local news um, across the country. That's not what their charter says they should do. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the um, I'm from country Victoria and, you know, there's no ABC local news there whatsoever. There's no reporting on the, um, the the local courts. So maybe they should have recommended that the ABC actually do that if they're saying that there's a big... Um, They've got a billion dollars a year. There's a massive market a failure here in, in no local news. Well, maybe get the public broadcaster to do that. But um, back to, to donating to, to journalism, I think that... It's um, news is a consumer good that um, can be funded by me, you know, buying a newspaper, paying a subscription, or donating to to uh, a podcast or, or something like that. I don't think that yes, there is that, that that is actually a very good idea. Any, last, any particular podcasts or? Yeah, there's, there's or donate a, directly to the podcast hosts. That's, <laughs> that's also an option. Well, well, there are like there has been, um, you know, there's been a big uh, upswing in like uh, people donating on Patreon to, to podcasters who are effectively delivering news. And of course, there's some very good institutions that run pod, podcasts like the IPA, which you can donate to as well. But I think that when we start expanding the definitions of, of public goods um, and say that this now deserves a tax-deductible status, then I don't really see where it ends because in this slippery way of defining public good, I think that you know, most things could be defined that way. You see, I'm worried about something slightly different here, which is that this is code for professional for enforcing professionalization of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a job. Um, and you know, when we talk about news, what, you know, news and broad, broadly understood, um, you know, sports news is doing fine. Um, you know, lots, there's lots of parts of the news. Because people want that. Are, are, are absolutely <laughs> fine. It's, it's only the political content of this, which is a, a, a subset of, of the news business and spectrum that we're actually really talking about. But somehow this is smuggled in as a general problem with the provision of news, which makes it sound so much bigger and more important than it really is. 
Um, and then you've also got this this problem of, you know, a world like th- like that where you've got locked down, you know, taxpayer funded um, sinecures um, for journalism. What does that labour market look like? Right, that's that's one where you're appointed. Are you appointed to a, to be the professional news? Um, political journalist for life is that a well, you know, how does that actually work i i just don't see how once you sort of start down that road of taking market signals and out of that process like where does this end you also heavily politicize it and one of the one of the reasons i actually have mixed oh. views about this idea but, but one, we, we so and, and we're back to finkelstein aren't we i mean we're back to yeah, so, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, basically, uh, you can think about this in the long context of the last decade of debates about freedom of speech in the press, where the um, Labor government's Finkelstein inquiry into the press tried to license or recommended in some fashion the licensing of press outlets as well. And one of the reasons that I was so opposed, and I know a lot of us were so opposed, is because that requires the government to decide whether you're a legitimate outlet or not. And um, in this model, it would require the government to decide whether you're a legitimate journalism outlet or not. And the ACCC actually goes even further and says, well, you know, the um, regulator in this case, which would be the charities regulator, because it's about tax deductible donations, would appropriately disqualify organisations that engage in political advocacy. So you can do journalism, you can do the magical vision of journalism that they teach in journalism schools. But the moment you stray into advocacy, wow, basically no op-eds, whatever happens. Don't write op-eds. You can do as much um, uh, court reporting as you like. Uh, This is, a, to my mind, this is, again, this is taking deep matters of political philosophy and understanding about how democracy works and understanding the um, factors of discontent and then just trying to filter it through a crazy sort of technocratic vision of, well, you know, we know that regulations can fix everything. Surely they can fix journalism and democracy too. Indeed. And uh, I never thought I'd say this, but all credit to Stephen Conroy, the (laughs) the communications minister under the uh, Rudd Gillard Rudd government. Uh, that was proposing to regulate the media uh, to nobble the Murdoch press inter alia and, uh, and licensed journalists because it was all transparent. He's like, yes, the media needs regulated. I'm, I'm going to have an inquiry. I'm going to put a bill together. I'm going to ram it through Parliament and this will teach them good and proper and uh, at least we could have a good old political debate and, yes, Chris, you and the IPA were heavily involved in that and I uh, can take a lot of the credit for actually... Sinking it. Oh my God, that might have. Is that political advocacy when you say this bill would be bad? Look, it's sort of it, it, it's sort of recursive, unfortunately. Yeah, at this yeah, stage. it's a bit it's a bit circular. <laughs> Are we allowed to attack? You the would bill? have been retro, <laughs> retroactively prosecuted for actually arguing against the government bill. Whereas uh, in this case, this is in many ways scarier because it is being smuggled back in through the back door under the guise of a of a competition regulator's technocratic recommendations. But it's it's no less scary than anything Conroy was actually proposing at the time. Well, let's hope it sinks. Let's hope it sinks. Now, uh, meanwhile, uh, this is an issue that has broken through much more into the wider public, uh, helped along by Barnaby Joyce, who... Uh, in an interview, was trying to put the focus on the new start allowance, but instead it became, gosh, it's really hard for me to manage because I now have um, two partners and two families and uh, I'm not coping on my MP's pension. But underneath it all, there was actually an issue with new start that he was trying to highlight. That's absolutely right. So I, mean, I, I think people have been very unfair to Barnaby Joyce in many ways um, because he was talking about um, the 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 very low levels of Newstart. The reason that he was telling the story about his parliamentary salary is precisely to make a case to increase Newstart. So this has been a debate that has been bubbling along quietly. Labor was calling for a review into Newstart during the election. Um, but over the last month or two, a number of um, prominent conservatives have been more vocal about, yeah, maybe this new start we probably should increase um, a little bit. Now, this is not at all a consensus position. Scott Morrison has described this um, uh, this argument as unfunded empathy. Um, uh, but I think there's actually a strong case to make for the increase in new start. So just for a bit of background, if you're on new start as a single person, you get $277.85 a week. That is not a lot of money at all if you think about your own spending patterns. If you've got a kid, you get slightly more than that. You get $300 a week. Now, Newstart 
is indexed to inflation. But most welfare programs, we don't index to inflation. Most welfare programs like the pension, we actually index to things like the cost of living, the cost of living and wages. And indexing it to inflation is actually quite distortionary because of the nature of the way we measure inflation. So I think there's a there's a strong argument that we should actually probably do this. Now, I think we should minimize welfare, but when you're on welfare, it shouldn't be um, uh, it, it shouldn't be a penalty. It should be something that helps support and helps build so that you can get a job, not the sort of thing that makes it harder to get a job. But I know, Kurt, you've been looking a little bit into this. Too. What's your take? Yeah, well, I think um, the important issue that uh, I think Scott Morrison pointed out is that you know, well over 90% of people who are on New Start are also on some other form of government payment. So they can be you know smaller payments of the the energy. Um, what's it called? The so there's a there's a um, energy bonus that you get because of the high cost of the renewable energy. Target. Yeah, so that was brought in to co- to uh, mitigate the effects of a carbon tax, but then we've we've kept it, uh, I believe. So, uh, and then there's also rent assistance, and then there's all these payments um, connected with uh, if you have children. So, there's not the case that there's a, a large amount of people trying to live off forty dollars a day. And the other thing is that I, I find interesting. But, sorry, sorry, Kurt, but it do, that doesn't address it because those ninety nine percent of people do get other payments. That's absolutely right. But the vast bulk of that ninety nine percent of people only get around an extra dollar a day. So yes, because of the um, energy bonus. So yes, they do get more. But no, it's not material. Yeah. So so I think the, the question is is why what is the evidence that we need to increase the new start? So I've seen a lot of people put out like the the poverty rate statistics, which actually the Melbourne Institute uh, released the the latest findings from the Hilda data, which showed that it, we had a slight uptick in the the poverty rate to I think it was ten point four percent, which but it's continuing a a downward trend. So that's a, a very low rate. And the other the issue with the poverty rate is that it isn't actually a poverty measure. It's a measure of inequality. And I think it's uh, quite ridiculous that we're using the word poverty to describe someone making half the, the average wage. So, and then the other thing is that if you look at the anchored poverty rate, so uh, in the Melbourne Institute's data, they have an anchored poverty rate to if you're making below the poverty rate in 2001 and we keep that level constant, you know, how many people you know, are actually making below the 2001 poverty rate? And that's down to, to 4% and it's been you know, obviously decreasing the whole time. So I don't see that uh, in the, the data that there's any reason to call for, for increases. And I think that it's interesting that Barnaby Joyce tries to argue for increases in uh, New Start with a case about not being able to provide for his two families on $200,000, which I think just demonstrates that there's an issue that people have with financial management. If finally Joyce can't manage his income or his expenses on $200,000, maybe there's an issue that, that's going a bit beyond the, ab- the absolute rate. Jason, so, is, there, is there a general principle that would allow us to say uh, new start is too high or too low? Yes. If- from an economic perspective, New Start is just insurance. It's an insurance product that is being offered by the government in the same way that you could potentially buy unemployment insurance in a market and it would have certain features and you'd buy more or less of it. Um, but I, th- I think that the broader discussion here is actually something that I think um, you know, this is an ideal opportunity to have this discussion around what Deirdre McCloskey calls the bourgeois deal, which is this idea of a generous, you know, open safety net for everyone in return for... Um, capitalism for just capitalism <laughs> to go as free as it can, like, but the, yep. the, as, as this as, the, as this fundamental trade-off, we can we can you know we can ensure everyone gets an absolute minimum if we have a mechanism and incentive for the system we're living in to create more wealth. And the question, I, I mean, I, I sort of see this as the the. the the issue here is not to sort of see this in isolation as just, you know, what is the fair level of New Start compared to, you know, whatever, but to see this as New Start as part of a, of a social system, of a, of a market capitalist system. And we can make it as high as, you know, as, as we like if we've got a system that's strong enough to provide that. You see, I reckon I, I have 
precisely the opposite view as the Deirdre McCloskey position because I think that the reason that we should be sympathetic to claims that we need um, more generous welfare is because precisely we have so many regulations, so many controls on the labour market, so many controls on business startups that we're actually specifically pushing people out of work. So the minimum wage is the most obvious instance of a policy that we have that almost by design pushes people out of the labor force. But every other regulation that we've been looking at is a burden on business startups. It's a burden on economic growth. It's a burden on precisely the sorts of people that fall off and on to welfare. And so this is this has been an argument that I've been running for, for some years that when we decide that um, it's not just about you know how much the the macro um, wage is, whether it's two hundred and seventy seven dollars or three hundred dollars or whatever it is a week, it's about all the mutual obligation requirements, the work from the dole, even the culture around dole bludgers. We, through regulation, put them out of work in the first place. That's obviously not the case for everyone, but it's a significant enough. Um, uh, yeah, with, with a minimum wage of $19, you, you're essentially keeping them there because obviously their marginal productivity is much lower than $19. Otherwise, they would be able to get a job. That's right. And so but, that's but, so their marginal productivity uh, might be, say, $10 an hour, but they're not allowed to work. So I, w- I, would, I would direct our attention on the centre right or on the free market movement away from overly generous welfare provisions, which I think there's no way you can argue that $277 a week is overly generous, but overly generous welfare provisions and talk about the things that are putting people out of work. Yeah, exactly. I think the the issue isn't to, I don't think we should be arguing to increase the welfare. We should be arguing to decrease the regulation and the the labour restrictions that are keeping people out of work and the, you, the, the gap do, do you know between who does that you know who does that well that's what i hate been, to say are there anything that you know no, 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 no it's a guy called trump this is why trump never mentions welfare he knows who's voting for him he doesn't he doesn't go after the the welfare uh in the appellations uh, he talks about how, how you're going to get the jobs back and you're going to deregulate the economy and i think barnaby joyce is uh also on that political crest of a wave because it's I mean, a lot of the national electorates are low SES uh, socioeconomic um, profiles anyway, and you're not you're not going to win those seats going after welfare. But you, what Trump does is marry that. Say you can keep your welfare. That's that's the insurance contract. That's a social contract. But I am going to bust up this. Uh, this economic strangulation and actually get the jobs back. And I, the other thing is that, particularly in Australia, we have the highest minimum wage in the world of. You know, $19, which is uh, about $12 more than what you'd be making on Newstart. So we're telling people implicitly that we would prefer you to be out of work on $7 an hour instead of being in work with $15 an hour. So, you know, exp- we're telling people are better off with with less money and without experiencing the dignity of work, which I think is absolutely insane. I think this is something that particularly on the left, that they don't actually deal with. They say that, oh, we have all these people on Newstart and there's there's no jobs. It's like, okay, well, how do we get more jobs? We get more jobs by removing red tape on businesses, allowing them to create jobs, and we get more jobs by ceasing to make a, a whole host of jobs illegal by saying that every job under $19 an hour is illegal, which is completely insane. So I, I think there is an obvious solution to this, which is just as the pension is indexed to reflect cost of living and um, wage increases across the economy, you should do precisely the same for Newstart. I cannot imagine an um, environment in which they'd be, they would be differently indexed. Um, and of course, it just but it, but it does reflect the relative political power of these two separate groups. There's unemployed people who have no significant political power, and then there's pensioners who uh, have, have very significant But But the difference power. there, just, just quickly, is that the pension is by design, a long-term payment that you're supposed to be on for a long period of time. And Newstart is different because it is supposed to be something that you are on momentarily before you, you know, come back into the work workplace. So I think there there is a difference and I think it's a mistake to treat Newstart the same way as we treat the pension. Yeah, that's true. But I, I would be more believing of that argument if I thought there was really any clear evidence about how much money you needed to get a job. 
Um, and so I, I think we've put all these mutual obligations on everyone. We've said, you've got to work for the dole. You've got to put in 20 job applications a month and so forth. But I um, have seen no real evidence to suggest that that is effective strategies at getting people back into work. There's a lot of like, you should, I, I feel like you should put in 20 job applications. And the next government says, no, I think they should put in 30 a month. Or, um, no, I think work for the dole should be 14 days rather than 13 days. Um, there's a lot of that sort of stuff, but there's not a lot of evidence about exactly how much money you would require to, you know, maintain, you know, your wardrobe so that you can go to job interviews and, and so forth. Well, I think one way to treat that is, is, is to treat it like a, an income contingent loan in the same way we do HECS, in the sense that you can let people figure that out for themselves, borrow against the future, in the same way that you know, um, New Start is basically an insurance product. It's also an insurance product that is publicly provided because of a um, because of missing financial markets, the ability to actually borrow from the future to, to, to tide you over through uncertainty. So you know, the question of whether government should be in that to the extent um, in, in this business of, of, of providing these, these these missing financial products um, is, is, is also open. Yeah, so I, I like I, that I, hex for the doll. I mean, I, I have an income protection policy. It's a tax deductible, by the way. Oh, really? Enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, <laughs> just unlike public, public interest journalism, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> we have come to that portion of the show where we talk uh, books and culture, what we've been reading, watching, or listening to. And uh, there's some... Uh, some rich pickings out there. I, I might actually lead off today. I've I've taken a lot of pleasure out of watching a show called uh, on ABC called Blue Water Empire, which is about the um, uh, the people of the Torres Strait, uh, the Torres Strait Islands. There are over, over 250 islands in the region, of which about 16 are inhabited. It's uh, presented uh, by a bloke called Aaron Faso, who's uh, descended. Uh, from various clans, um, actually, I think grew up in a place called Bumaga, where some of them relocated uh, onto the uh, Torres Strait, uh, the, sorry, the Cape York Peninsula. Uh, but this is a, a fascinating program. I start uh, started from a position of uh, almost complete ignorance. We talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and then spend ninety nine percent of our public culture talking about the Indigenous peoples of the mainland and Tasmania. Um, as they point out uh, in their uh, narration and the story they tell, these uh, uh, Melanesian people um, uh, from uh, uh, same as those from Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's a maritime region. They, they produced amazing boats that were much prized. Uh, they used to trade those boats to, to Pap the people of Papua New Guinea um, to use on their, on their river systems because uh, they were so skilled at, at making them in their... Their encounter with the um, the Europeans was uh, really quite complex, and 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 quite a lot was negotiated because they had um, uh, tribal structures with identified uh, tribal leaders. There were opportunities to negotiate. So the original systems. Uh, this is in episode one to uh, uh, produce the uh, the best mare, the trepang that was so prized in Asia. Is this a, is it a documentary or fiction? Uh, documentary, yeah. documentary. Um, and uh, so you can get it on ABC iView, and so they, you know, they were very much de uh, active uh, shapers of their own destiny to the extent that they could. Obviously, the the inrush of the Europeans was tremendously disruptive, and and it also brought Christianity and all sorts of things. But um, they they were uh, as he, as they keep saying a, a warrior people. They were you know proud tribal people. They were they were headhunters. This is. It's funnily enough, Channel Seven got pulled up by ACMA for in, implying that some tribe in the Amazon were were headhunters, and whereas the, uh, the people of the Torres Strait are like, yeah, we absolutely were. <laughs> you know, we would kill you and eat you if we didn't like you. And it's this is part of our um, part of our culture, and and uh, and you can see, and and now many of them play rugby, and I guess that's uh, uh, very very well, and that's the next best thing, I suppose. Um, to that kind of organised violence, uh, but no, a, a proud people, and and actually some of the the more the most depressing episodes are towards the end, not not in the benighted nineteenth century when supposedly all things were terrible. It was when the the state of Queensland became all paternalistic and decided that uh, they couldn't be trusted with their own wages, 
and uh, started setting up trust accounts. And the litigation of this is uh, is still going on. That um, you know, literally millions of dollars that uh, the people of the Torres Strait um, worked locally, uh, earned locally, and also on you know railway projects all over Australia were then put into trust accounts. And and they they in many cases they just couldn't get their own money back. So paternalism was a, was a disaster for them. Um, but yeah, a rich culture, uh, very interesting people, interesting story. Just a very well-made documentary that I, um, uh, I think, just to understand Indigenous issues and and the unique set of, um, uh, and it gets into native title and and the original Mabo decision, as you'd expect, uh, and the particular context of the Torres Strait, which is quite different to the mainland. So I recommend Blue Water Empire to anyone who wants to have a look. So I have been listening to, I listened to a Reason podcast of a public debate held in New York City in June this year between um, Stephen Hicks, who will be familiar to the audience um, uh, of Looking Forward because we interviewed Stephen um, a couple of months ago, and that of course is available on our channel, um, and against the author, or a debate against the author Thaddeus Russell, um, and this debate was on postmodernism. So the um, argument was around can libertarians um, be postmodernists or should postmodernism be seen as the antithesis of a libertarian worldview? It's um, a fascinating debate and discussion, and of course, it's got a lot of um, contemporary resonance given um, uh, the, the role that Jordan Peterson has had in um, underlining the significance of postmodernism, much of which, of course, was Stephen to Stephen Hicks's credit because he's the author of a um, excellent book on postmodernism. Having said that, though, I found myself listening to this debate slightly more sympathetic to Thaddeus Russell's position. Um, uh, I, I think there's an element of postmodernism in most free market economic thinking um, insofar as that we're interested as free market economists and as free marketeers in um, subjective values in um, the nature of institutions over time and how um, our worldview is shaped by those institutions if we are to say that um, you can take a person and put him in an, or them in an institutional setting, and that institutional setting will shape their behaviour and the way they think and their beliefs and even their morality. That's a kind of postmodern claim, I think, but it's really fundamental to the way we think about how we should have a good society. But um, uh, Stephen Hicks did make some excellent points, of course, um, uh, but it was well worth listening to and um and and great fun and and very much a debate of our time scott it is indeed uh and we're not going to stop talking about postmodernism anytime probably soon. not no. yes yeah, so i've been watching some 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 good tv recently and um fleabag is is a show that's, that's put together by um phoebe waller bridge who you may know from um absolutely sublimely brilliant show killing eve and what this one is, it's, it's an unlikely um, show to be what, what I think is quite possibly the best television that has ever been made. In the sense <laughs> wow, that, that, that big call. It's big call, and, and I'll stand so by we, it. We and started with Chernobyl, and now we're in Fleabag. That's the <laughs> Fleabag. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of one-hander um, show about a, a sort of woman going through the, um, the – sort of trying to deal with the death of her best friend, and it doesn't sound like sort of prime comedy material. But it's absolutely just fundamentally brilliant from the sort of just genius behind a lot of the um, way in which this is done, sort of breaking the fifth wall of, of, of television and some of these things. But they so fundamentally recommend Fleabag. But the other thing just to note about this is where it came from. And this is this is out of Jeff Bezos's online bookstore um, and now new empire of, of brilliant television production, which I think just sort of goes to indicate so just... This is Amazon Prime. This is Amazon Prime. So, you know, in the same way that, you know, we saw, you know, HBO pioneered a lot of really brilliant television by providing high-powered incentives for, you know, creative new ideas to come and, and experiment in this space, we're now seeing it come out of new platforms. And I think we can expect to see a lot more of this, that a lot of the really top television starts in on these new digital platforms that that, that are not the sort of classic... TV stations producing things and, and eventually finds, I think you mentioned, Scott, that it was now on ABC. 
Okay, so it, it found its way there eventually, but it didn't it didn't start there. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I don't think Amazon. I mean, you can get Amazon Prime through uh, Telstra TV and, and other apps. In fact, I've just downloaded it last night, so I could watch another program. Um, but uh, that they are, they are willing to partner with uh, an ABC or a, or an SBS or even commercial. Some things are getting picked up by commercials, maybe not straight away, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a great model. Fleabag is magnificent, and um, she she is a, I think she wrote and directed it. But um, the character that she's playing, which is um, presumably a version of herself, is just an absolute sociopath. Yeah. Um, uh, and the the first season is magnificent, but in the second season she meets another sociopath, and um, they go down from there. Hilarity it, ensues. It, hilarity ensues, but there's also there's just a deep <laughs> sense of sort of comic tragedy. It's, it, it is genuinely magnificent. I think show. episode one, season two is quite possibly perfect television. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one to look at. Uh, so I've been reading a book by the famous Australian fiction author John Marsden. His new book. The Art of Growing Up, which is a non-fiction book, and the way so this was released last week, and the way that um, I was brought to it was brought to my attention was first there was a write-up in the Australian about him, but also there was a little bit of a controversy around some of the things he'd said in the book around bullying, and we sort of had this cancel culture sort of come out on Twitter with people calling for him to be um, cancelled. So from, what's his he's pro-bullying? No, so <laughs> so he puts. A number of times in the book, he sort of points out that bullying is a feedback mechanism for, for children to, you know, inform. Like there's information being communicated to the, the bullied child and there are ways that the bullied child can respond in a positive way. So uh, any any talk like that to some people is, is, is termed uh, victim blaming and is not allowed to be spoken. So I think uh, having uh, now read the book that... A lot of that sort of stuff's been taken out of context a fair bit. And he's also, because it's also about then what, if his strategy is just to run off to the principal of the school, say, then it's not necessarily going to help the child. Is it? Is that, was that uh, the so argument? So saying that in some cases that um, I might be bullied because of the way I'm treating um, other students in the school, for example, um, and that I might need you know, to self reflect ah. on what I'm doing, um, the dislikable characteristics that I'm portraying. Um, and, you know, some of the ways that kids communicate that they don't appreciate your behaviour is not very highly sophisticated. Sometimes it does take the form of what could be termed um, bullying. The, the first academic article I ever had published was on cyberbullying. And I talked a little bit about this because there's, there's sort of bullying and there's bullying. And there are some really serious um, stories about um, serious bullying that, you know, we need... Um, schools and even the police to get deeply involved with but then there's there's sort of like um, ribbing and there, there's there's stuff that kids have to negotiate as they grow up and that both the bullies and the bullied need to realize what the legitimate boundaries are of um, amusement and jokes and all that sort of stuff so there's a huge yeah. I mean it turns out childhood is about learning I don't know whether anybody do that but um uh, yeah. but but because the because now schools are very likely to push everything into, well, there's absolutely no bullying, which has been, been really positive in some ways. But um, there is a risk that we go too far in the other direction and start sort of trying to manage interpersonal relationships for children. Yeah, definitely. And, and John Marsden, who is a principal of two independent schools in the Macedon area, uh, Candlebrook and Alice Miller, so there's a, I think there's a primary school and a, a secondary school, up there, so and he's drawing on forty years of experience as a teacher. Uh, he talks about a number of examples of, and, and a lot of it is dealing with parents as well. So, dealing with um, you know looking at how the parents are interacting with the school and how they're interacting with their children and all that sort of thing. Um, so, a number of uh, interesting things about like what he talks about in terms of parenthood is sort of this multi generational influence of you know how I'm parented will have effects on how I then parent my children and then, you know, some of the, the negative things in those relationships sort of do flow on and, you know, how that can really have profound negative effects on, on, on children. So that's an interesting part of the book. Another part which I found interesting was that he sort of talks about how people in general, but particularly adolescents, tend to prioritise the macro over the micro in terms of issues, and I think so, like Keynesians, 
<laughs> Sorry, a little economics yeah. joke there. Yeah, no, so it actually reminds me of uh, of Jordan Peterson's whole thing about cleaning your room. So, you know, taking care of you know, what's actually in front of you before you engage in you know, big macro issues. Um, so, so that was an interesting thing. And, and the other thing that, um, so I sort of was familiar a little bit with Marsden and his school. So his independent schools, uh, he's uh, big on the culture of the schools, how they treat the children with respect uh, and sort of very this anti-cotton wool mentality of, of um, dealing with children. So he Good man. S- says on his website, you know, that kids at his school will be using power tools. Um, <laughs> That, you know, they have bikes, they have a very uh, laissez-faire approach to that because of the importance that children need um, to actually have experiences. You know, mm-hmm. They need to um, experiment with things and be free to do so. Um, and also talking about how it's important about you know, having, you know, well-adjusted adults around, which he prioritises in the selection of his staff and, and all that. But what I found interesting and, and and slightly disappointing, to be honest, was uh, he expresses some very strong views against conservatives and those on the right. So I think uh, it's clear that Marsden is is someone off the left. But what I was sort of disappointed about was I thought that the book was going to go in a bit more of a, you know, aim the guns at the Department of Education a bit and talk more about the importance of independent schools and school choice, which, you know, if you had gone in that direction, I think there was there is a... A sympathetic hearing, uh, particularly amongst um, conservative and, and libertarian libertarian people. So um, that was a little bit disappointing, but I think it's it's very worth reading. Um, it talks a lot about important issues in parenting and schools. So, and it's very well written. So I recommend that to the listeners. No, good one. Uh, he was interviewed uh, in uh, I think the Age uh, a few weeks ago, and I quoted it to both my daughters because it it said um, if parents aren't saying uh, no to their adolescents at least ten times a day, then um, they're not doing their job. And also, your kids must get jobs. Mm. I bet that all went down really well. Oh yeah, no, no, uh, <laughs> uh, one of them's off to Benny's Burgers. Oh great, <laughs> yeah. So no, 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 the job done. Thank you, John Marsden. It's all good. You have been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panelists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA. To access our research or to join or donate at the IPA, please go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. Professor Jason Potts. Thank you. Kurt Wallace. Thank you. And, of course, our producers, Saul Muscatel and Josh Stranger. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.